This is episode 49 of the weekly eye-catching words podcast, published on the 8th of November, 2023. Hello. And welcome to the Eye Catching Words podcast, episode 49, which means that officially we're just one away from the big 5-0. Although actually we've done a couple of bonus episodes, so technically we've done more than 50 already. Anyway, this week I will be covering a number of topics, obviously looking back at the week's news, particularly with a focus on Israel and Gaza, but also the vampire that won't die Donald Trump, who uh, is now worryingly leading Biden in some key states. More of that later. And we've also got a podcast with two dicks, which is me back with my son Leo talking about big stuff. So that's this week's podcast itinerary. Let's kick off with a look back at the news. Hello. I don't know what the time is and I'm not in Greenwich. Meantime, here is the news from Planet Shitshow. Apologies for the slightly cynical opening to this section, but you have to admit it's quite difficult to stay positive about the news at the moment. So let's start off with some good news. Or is it good news? Depends how you look at things. The last two years, a sheep has been languishing at the bottom of a cliff in the UK, and it's been very lonely, or at least we assume it's very lonely. Maybe it was very happy to be out of the way with everything that's going on. Anyway, how it got down the bottom of the cliff, no one knows, but it's been all on its own. It's been surviving quite happily, but someone has decided that it needed rescuing. So for several days now, a group of animal welfare enthusiasts have been working with the landowner to manage the lifting of the sheep back up onto the cliff and uh, the transfer of the sheep to an animal sanctuary. Now, this all sounds very humane and very loving. Unfortunately, the day before they were about to put their plan into operation, the landowner cuddled up or cozied up with a sheep farm and got them to take the sheep off the bottom of the cliff and into their farm. This caused a bit of a brouhaha and the animal rights activists started picketing the farm with little homemade cardboard notices along the lines of give us our sheep back or give us the sheep back because of course we don't own animals we just welfare them. The sheep farmers claim to be intimidated by this, although having seen a photograph of the animal rights activists, I think it would be very difficult for anyone to be intimidated by them. Anyway, the good news is the sheep has been rescued. The bad news is people are still fighting over it. Is this a case of woolly thinking? Is the sheep likely to end up getting the chop? Is someone likely to get fleeced? Does anyone really care anymore? Meanwhile, over in America, the Trump saga just goes on and on and on. What is it with this man? He is currently going through a legal process where an experienced judge is looking at what he did to overvalue his 
property portfolio, his net wealth. And from the preliminary remarks the judge has made, it's clear there's a case to answer. Will Trump leave it alone? No. He keeps getting to his feet, uh, making stupid remarks, and the judge keeps putting him back in the box. The man is an egomaniac. Now we know that, but it's still incredible how he keeps adding bits to his portfolio. Whatever happens with this particular trial, however, we have to look at next year's election, which will be taking place in about a year's time. And remarkably, in four out of five swing states considered critical to the next election, Trump seems to be leading Biden by about four percentage points. You can argue that you don't like Biden, but to say that you'd prefer to have Trump seems to be a remarkable thing. Now, The Guardian is interpreted this and other information as saying actually people don't want either Trump or Biden. Well, it's not much of a choice, is it? Unless Biden decides not to stand for another term, which I think is actually really unlikely because he has also got a taste for leadership, power, whatever you want to call it. And I don't think he would be very inclined to stand aside and let someone else lead the party. And of course, if he did do that, you then got the whole issue of another leadership election for the Democrats leading up to within the 12 months of the election, which is not actually a good thing because it could get very bitter and it could put voters off even more. But let's be honest, the Trump phenomenon is not unusual globally now. Every country seems to have its capacity to allow authoritarian idiots to come to the fore and stay, stay in power, stay in place, stay popular. Uh, and why is that? From Netanyahu through to Putin, through to Trump, through to any number of tin pot European leaders, time and again we are seeing people who clearly lie, do not have the interests of people at heart, do not actually care about anything except their own ego, still being able to achieve power and still being able to remain right at the heart of their country's affairs. The problem is America is different. America is the global superpower, even if China is snapping at its heels. And the fact is that economists are already saying that the combined effects of the war in Israel and Gaza and the war in the Ukraine with other forms of instability around the globe are going to cause severe economic problems. They're going to have big consequences. Now, if America ends up in a situation where it is riven again with conflict and, frankly, the potential for it to spill over into, if not civil war, then certainly internal conflict, that produces a very, very bleak outlook for the, for the world. So we've all, got a, we've all got a stake in what happens next year in America. We've all got a stake actually in every other country of the world now. And if there's one thing that the last few years have taught us, if there's one thing, in fact, that the 21st century has taught us from 9-11 onwards through the 2008 recession, through the Ukraine war, the Israel-Gaza war and numerous other smaller wars, 
One thing we must now understand is that we are all locked together. We are all tied together and we will all drown together or we will all make it safely through this period of history together. Going back to the, the, Trump, the last Trump administration, there were some serious voices raised saying that California should cede from the Union, uh, which would almost undoubtedly lead to a form of civil war. The divisions are deep. The implications of those di divisions are enormous. Utopia is no longer on the table. Dystopia is definitely the favoured flavour of the future. So where are we with Israel and Gaza this week? Well, you've read the news. If you're like me, you probably obsessively check it several times a day. But the fact is, Israel's payback is out of control. The response is now tragically disproportionate. But there are two things I'd like to focus on which aren't receiving much attention. The first is that Israel was the victim at the beginning of this story and is now being seen as the aggressor, which is understandable in purely country terms, in purely Gaza versus Israel terms, but it has led to a huge surge in anti-Semitism around the world. Uh, France has got the largest Jewish population in Europe and the largest population outside of America and Israel itself at around a half a million people. And it's just seen a massive surge, uh, several hundred percent in anti-Semitic reported events since the conflict began. The signs are all around us in the UK. For some reason, there are people out there who either can't or don't want to draw the distinction between the actions of the Israeli government and the ordinary everyday rights of Jewish people living all around the world. The other thing I want to talk about is Vladimir Putin in relation to Israel Gaza. This has had very, very little airing, but the few people that have talked about it uh, have actually talked about it in a very serious way. This is not conspiracy theory. When you step back and look at it, it makes absolute sense. Let's just look at the tripartite relationship between Russia, Iran, Israel. If you are Vladimir Putin and desperately want to draw the world's attention from the Ukraine and create bigger problems for America by having an additional front on which to fight their battles, I cannot believe that Putin did not encourage Iran and in fact enable Iran to equip Hamas to undertake the attacks that it took on October the 9th. It will have had every success that he could possibly have hoped for including creating more tension about how to respond within America and its allies. There is a new axis of evil at work in the world. Its boundaries sometimes shift, but it is very clearly manipulating world affairs in the way that it wants to. Welcome to a podcast with two dicks, episode two, and this time we're going to be talking about how literature and books and iconic writers have guided our lives. I would pin it down to, uh, let's just say three for argument's sake, Samuel Johnson, 
Lord Macaulay and <laughs> uh, Shakespeare, actually. Wow. Yes. It's quite an eclectic that range of figures, is, isn't it? Maybe uh, some people haven't heard of those three. Well, everyone's heard of Shakespeare, I would hope. Just two brief uh, uh, introductions as to the other two. Samuel Johnson was an 18th century writer, man of letter letters, uh, essayist, moralist, um, but he's most famous for being the author of uh, the first real English dictionary. Um, his uh, contributions to two publications in particular, The Rambler and The Idler, was a very sort of morally based writings and publications, um, which was, was, was what literary historians call the Augustan age of English writing and prose. It's really, if you read those extracts, and they're not long, they're in short essay form essentially, but they teach us, they address moral questions, how we should live, how we should think, how we should behave, personal conduct, how we manage our emotions and our feelings, etc. Johnson, if I remember rightly, and you might have to educate me here, was writing and lived and, and wrote in the late uh, 18th, early 19th century? Just the 18th century, yes. He died in the 1790s, if I recollect. Okay. And I think also to correct, maybe, or, or maybe for people to think about getting a, a, a better perspective on Johnson, there is a lot more to Johnson than you will ever read in Sam, uh, Boswell's life of Johnson. Modern editors of Boswell's famous biography of Johnson, which is I'd recommend to anybody, not least because it's beautifully written, but because Bo uh, Boswell and Johnson didn't meet until um, uh, the, the age gap between them was quite was quite wide. Yeah. So Boswell obviously had to consult sources and ask Johnson you know, what about his early life was, etc. Uh, but modern editors do realise that it can be a bit. Um, uh, unreliable in some places that it's designed to uh, over overemphasize Johnson's virtues. You know, he was he was catering for the, the man himself. You can look at I'd say that his his essays and his writings offer a deep insight into his own personal mind. So that's Johnson. Lord Macaulay, of yeah. course, was he what he was a nineteenth century man, a Victorian writer, also again an, an essayist, but he was most well known for his um, six volume history of England. Uh, Macaulay was also the ancestor um, of G.M. Trevelyan, who was a late 19th century, early 20th century historian who wrote right. English social history. And they are part of what's called the Whig tradition slash interpretation of history. The Whig tradition asserts that history is a story of progress. In other words, things are going to get better. Prose alone is uh, such a joy to read. I would say that his... Uh, writing influences certainly influence the way I write and the way I think as well because everything the the sentence structure the, the grammar the vo the vocabulary it really influences your thoughts like never before it's it's, it's very very high high literature was he someone who you mentioned he had this belief in human progress and mm. generally speaking he had that philosophy of, of man's progress humanity's progress Yes, yeah, completely. I mean, you have to remember that he was living throughout a time when there was a huge degree of uh, British self-confidence in its civilization. Okay. you know, the mid to late 19th century. Um, and that's why a lot of his critics, and there are many of his critics, uh, say that um, especially uh, the way he's he writes about the history of England is very, very... Uh, rose-tinted, to, yeah, to, to, to use a simple term, yeah. yeah. Yes, and if you can look at a Wikipedia page, um, 
I believe someone cites him as being a very intolerant-minded historian. Um, uh, I haven't read all of his letters and all of his uh, essays, but uh, I believe there's one where he effectively justifies British involvement in India, not on the grounds of race, but in terms of civilizational um, retrospect. You know, genuinely believe that British, Christian, European yeah. civilization was bringing enlightenment and civilization and order and social decency to a nation or a part of the world where he'd thought they were backward. Whilst also acknowledging the fact that a lot of ancient Indian culture and identity was very sophisticated and was very advanced and worthy of worthy of veneration, of course, as well. Yeah, I mean, there was a sense in which at that time uh, Britain was exporting the Victorian brand. Yes. The, the civilizing empire brand uh, and of course we had a heavy involvement in china which had universities when we were still living in oh absolutely well there was this there was this theory um without deviating too much that uh from the renaissance onwards europe had discovered some some idea or some ideal and it's there's no consensus universal term for what that was but it was this discovery of something something which elevated europe to new heights yeah. of military and technolo technological power which gave it an edge over its rivals if uh, historians always say this if you if you were in the year 1000 and you looked at western europe you know which was being you know post-roman empire ravaged by disunity viking raiders Sar saracen raiders um very very little uh, examples of good sophisticated development um, contrast that with uh, ancient China ancient India Japan whereas you mentioned universities yeah. and, and all these things yeah well, absolutely yes yeah the um, uh, Baghdad the one of the intellectual cap great intellectual capitals yeah. of the world so yeah I mean go back to the original question so yes Lord Macaulay Shakespeare and Dr Johnson yeah. Uh, yeah, that's just a very small selection of my own literary but, heroes. But, but let's talk about Shakespeare because we've talked about the other two. Mm. What is it about Shakespeare? I'm just, I'm just interested because yes. you've got a, 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 effectively a writer, a historian, and Shakespeare, of course, it was a dramatist. Yes. But his work is shot through with some great ideas yes. and some imaginative wonderfully imaginative perspectives on human nature hmm. uh, so how does he fit into your top three or, or, or your current top three in that sense well let me just go back quickly and say uh you mentioned that very few of us are shakespeare scholars but i'm afraid to say that anyone who speaks english is in a way, a Shakespearean scholar, because he invented lots of phrases and words that we use on a daily basis. Yeah. Let's give you three examples. Vanish into thin air, play yeah. fast and loose, and fair play. Yeah. You know, and those right. are just three out of, I think... Probably hundreds. One, yeah, I think 1,500, <laughs> at least, um, semi-daily Shakespearean phrases and using that, 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 that we use. Um, but in terms of how he's, how what I admire about him is that, you know, you mentioned the fact that he had a very strong insight on human nature um he was well versed in the classics um if you if for instance if you read antony and cleopatra and you notice that the uh bit where he describes cleopatra on her barge on the nile and contrast that with english translator of plutarch 
at the time. Yeah. Thomas Nash, I'm pretty sure. It, I, yeah. think it, I think it was. Um, the the Eng- the descriptions are similar in certain ways, but what Shakespeare's done is he's he's really spiced it up yeah. and uh, put put very delicious icing on the words yeah. to with his powers of rhetoric and his yeah. masterful use of language to convey this uh, really, really lo- 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 lovely impression. That's what I admire as well, his use of the English language, you know, is Shakespeare, I mean, and just thinking about T.S. Eliot, you know, hugely mm. influenced by Shakespeare and the wasteland, you know, shot through with uh, mm. Shakespeare and references. So Shakespeare has this continuing relevance. And, mm. it, and I, th- I suppose you, when you say that there are thousands of, Phrases and there's this Shakespeare's idiom mm. is still very, very idiom. Much I think is the right word. Actually, yes. There was a, a joke actually that uh, someone asked an American woman what she thought of Shakespeare, and she said she thought he was very good, but he he used too many quotations, which is kind of an elliptical argument because <laughs> he actually created those. Yes, those. He, the quotations originated yeah, with him. Yeah, it was also meant to illustrate the fact that he he was so deeply he had embedded himself so deeply in our language mm. that we, we didn't recognise him. Yeah. And, uh, I, I occasionally dip into things and I find things which I never knew were attributable to Shakespeare. Mm. So in terms of finding those those three writers so iconic, I suppose you've got to ask yourself the question because you you don't live in a vacuum. None of us do, but you, you always try and apply what you've written to everyday life. Mm. How would you say they've influenced or, or they are influencing your uh, your thinking and we, you know we have to remember that things we take for granted like uh, philosophy literature uh, and uh, history they're fairly re- recent developments in terms of civilization you know, we, yeah we, we by the time of the 19th and 20th century we're, we're beginning to codify these things yeah but there were there were very few places that taught these things people Indeed. had to, to make their own way i mean if you look at it it's the same with science um scientific institutions accelerated in the uh 17th 18th 19th mm-hmm. century so i mean is it fair to say that you actually you know if you go out if you if you're out in the course of your your, your daily life are you thinking about these great people do they do they kind of are they alive yeah for you? yeah yeah their words stick with me yeah. you know see i look at i look at the way you would absorb these things and it, you could see it in two ways you can see it as i've heard something or read something it's like adding a s- extra piece of brain matter to your brain yeah. but the way i see it actually is that these people you could apply this to every great writer and author they've interpreted the world around them in a certain way yeah. they've put that interpretation to a piece of paper and in their own lifetime they could either be slated or they could be venerated for that either way the fact that we're talking about them and heard of them shows that they were onto something how do they get that interpretation through their own senses the way that's a product of their upbringing their studies the way they've looked at the way the world is their their fellow human beings And looking at that is the best way of getting into another person's mind. Yeah. And then what that does, when you hear about it or read it, or, or read it, it becomes part of you. And that adds another type of sense or an extra lens onto your vision of the world, yeah. which gives you a new sense of perspective on daily existence. They do stick with me on a daily basis. My favourite Shakespearean quote, actually, is probably from Hamlet. Ophelia says that... We know what we are, but we know not what we may be. 
I think that is one of my favourites, along with um, There is Nothing Good or Bad, But Thinking Makes It So. Yeah, I mean, this, you you, uh, you threw that one at me the other day, and it, yes. it actually is very, very yeah uh, provocative as, as a concept because it's basically saying there are no moral absolutes. No. Uh, but we, we we create them in a way. Yeah, but, um, but what I find equally attractive to them is that they are such short sentences and sh- yeah. such short words, such yeah. individual, everyday words, and yet they carry such a powerful weight. You know, we know what we are, but we know not what we may be. It's such I mean, simple words, and that's... yet just contemplate it, and then it's just the mind just buzzes. That's and interesting, then... because I was listening to a podcast today. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he actually said that he was having a conversation with with someone on his podcast who said... Memes are very dangerous in modern society because they <laughs> they they simplify. They attempt to simplify complex things yeah. and give you a sense of like it's right or wrong. Um, now, in a way, what you're saying is Shakespeare. You never see that those quotes from Shakespeare in a meme. No, but Shakespeare had that ability to take something complex and distill it. Mm. Um, but I suppose the difference being. That he did that in the context of a broader, like hmm. a, a, a play or a yes. sonnet. Shakespeare didn't do memes. He did do pieces of work that people have extracted hmm. uh, some key sentences. That's the crucial from. thing. Yeah. yeah, I would say that memes operate on a similar level. You know, you know they they use a short amount of words to yeah. touch on a complex topic. I mean, I, I think most people find a good... I mean, there are some really bad memes out there, but a good meme is something that most people can appreciate. Certainly I do. Yeah. Um, but what really strikes me about listening to your enthusiasm for these great thinkers and writers, mm. yeah, and I'll exclude... Uh, I mean, you, you referenced Tolkien and Orwell, but, and, and I'll bring them in in a minute, but we live in an age which uh, where free people frankly dwell on... A dystopian future. Oh yes. Whereas, I think certainly from what you've said, Macaulay was someone who was writing in the context of expecting things to continually get better. Yeah. Um, I think Johnson, from the sound of it, was very immersed in in his own period in history and mm. and in the production of these great literary works such as the Dictionary. Shakespeare, I think, was uh, such a a commentator on all aspects of oh, yeah. human life. I don't think he actually... I mean, when you think about the the, the, the number of plays he wrote and the different themes he explored, everything from humour and joy hmm. to the destruction of, of, of empires, the fall of great individuals, hmm. the politics, you know, in, in hmm. Macbeth and uh, Richard... Coriolanus, and, yeah, and, Coriolanus. And, and Julius Caesar. Yeah. I mean, he, he basically was able to touch on all the great things without making a judgment that the future would be mm. good or bad. Yeah. But I, it does feel to me that there are a relatively... I mean, I can remember watching uh, plays when I was younger, particularly. And, I, and I, you know, I still do. I, 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 I enjoy plays that are intellectually stimulating. But it does feel as though we've uh, intellectually... Not abandoned, but we have deserted a lot, a lot of the things that require a bit more attention. Oh, I agree. Um, I mean, and I, I don't know that you know whether this is a, a real perspective. Or, you know, I don't know what the uh, the 
facts are about audience attendances for things like Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare is still enormously popular, mm. but with a very small section, I think, a very small section of society. Yeah. And I would tie that back to this old concept of things in politics that, that you know, where people who like these things are deemed to be intellectually elite, mm. uh, yeah. socially elite. Which is bizarre, know, really. Well, it is, because what you're basically saying is Macaulay, Johnson and Shakespeare all wrote about things that ordinary people could identify with. Mm. And if, if what we have heard is true, a lot of very ordinary people would pay their penny to rock up to the Globe Theatre and stand there mm. and uh, just be entranced by what Shakespeare... You know, Sh Shakespeare was mm. a rock and roll star. Yeah. You know, and, and would, the idea that he was of an elite in many ways, was is, is just not consistent with what we know about the history Precisely. of the yeah. 17th century. Yeah. I mean, it was his friend and, uh, in a way, rival, Ben Johnson, that said that he was not for an age, he was for a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that is so true. And also, he was performing in a theatre where actually, and I did an essay on this in my second year, um, there were, it was the, the audience could be very wide-ranging it wasn't the theatres at, at the Glo uh, the Globe Theatre and before that uh, other playhouses they were not designed specifically for elite audiences you didn't have to be you didn't have to be rolling in it to yeah. afford no. um, the ability to to see to sit to see these plays yeah. and yes of course you know you had the the king's men they performed for the, the royal court and uh, James the yeah, first yeah. who was Elizabeth's successor really really enjoyed enjoyed them naturally but um what well, a lot of Shakespearean I've, I've yet to encounter a Shakespearean scholar who disagrees with the fact that he was um, he was doing it in a way in a language which resonates with with ordinary yeah, yeah. people with all, yeah. yeah yeah he was he he they know that he observed everyday everyday life and every and everyday and everyday people um, he was remarkable and that his social circle was very eclectic yeah. and he did he did not just rub shoulders with. Yeah the uh, creme de la creme of yeah. society uh he was he was as well and i think that's the reason why his his legacy and his reputation has endured yeah. all, all all the time but i think the, one of the reasons why he mentioned that anyone who likes shakespeare or um goes to see him is considered el el elitist i think a that's because his language uh is is it, the language has evolved since mm. then maybe you do yeah. need a little bit of preemptive research yeah. and uh, an education to uh, translate in inverted commas some of the language that he uses and the, and the dialects. You know, you can. I, I remember. Re, re, I remember reading at first at secondary school. And I remember struggling immensely to yeah. uh, to uh, go along with what I was reading. But now that's uh, second nature. So that's part of it. It's not lots of colloquial, but a lot of people who like something basic, such as <laughs> you know, seeing seeing Shakespeare on stage or in a film versus watching. Love Island. So yeah. <laughs> it's the contrast is there. I do apologise in advance if I've caused any offence to anyone who likes Love Island. Oh, I, yeah. I, doubt, I doubt very much whether <laughs> anyone who loves Love Island is going to be listening to my podcast. Um, <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's just one last point. I think actually, um, this is really about education and culture. I think it is. I think it's. It's not easy to teach these things. Hmm. Uh, in schools, and I don't think it's easy to take this great legacy, and it, and it is a great legacy that we've got from pe these kind of people. Hmm. Um, 
how do we take that legacy? How do we teach it better? How do we use it in our everyday lives? Uh, because it, it's just there's just too much richness there to be ignored. Yeah. And I think in a way, uh, you know, by the time we got to, well, Tolkien and Orwell are obviously very different. T Tolkien lived through the First World War and had a, a, a terrible and personally damaging experience, mm. but he created what I think is a, a really a hugely optimistic body of fiction mm. uh, that and you could quote Sam on this couldn't you about you know always hanging on to hope mm. even in the most difficult of times and I think Orwell however could and, and you'd look at 1984 he could see mm. this dystopian future yeah. so by the time we get from Shakespeare to Orwell and, and indeed um, to T.S. Eliot uh the, the, there is not much optimism about the future. No, it's a, the future is a place where people have uh, cages on their heads with rats in them. It's a mm. place where every every, uh, every move is monitored, which yeah. it, it is in this society. That we live in. It's interesting that you say that. As I was walking earlier, I was listening to an interview um, with Andrew Roberts, the historian, um, who wrote obviously the Napoleon the Great, the Great Biography of Napoleon, and Churchill Walking with Destiny. Uh, I've got a signed copy of that, and I met him at Hatchards in 2018. And he made the case very, very obviously and clearly that how on earth can the Whig interpretation of history, you know, the, this Whig interpretation, things only get better, it's a story of the progress of humankind, that was absolutely shattered after Auschwitz. Yeah. yeah. Of course, George Orwell knew about that. He lived with the Second World, as did Tolkien, yeah. fun, funnily enough. Um, and so it's easy to come to that conclusion that uh, having gone through those horrors and seen the, the most, literally the very worst aspects of human nature, that the future would not look so rosy. Except a lot of historians um, are of the idea now that from the ashes of the Second World War and the horrors of the Holocaust, um, a, a brave new world to coin to use a phrase which is a title of another well-known book yeah. um, would yeah. come about and out of out yeah. of the ashes would and especially in Germany they saw that as a chance to start afresh start from a year a year zero almost and to look confidently into, into, into the into the future well that's, that's interesting because uh, Aldous Huxley's brave new worlds is a quote from Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, Brave New World has, has such people in it. Uh, yes. I can't remember which play, but I mean, that, we've gone full circle because actually mm. Huxley was quoting um, Shakespeare there. But um, Huxley wrote a different kind of dystopian vision of the yeah. future. But I suppose um, there are so many differences uh, to all the great thinkers and writers of the past in that, you know, and, and I know we, we've talked about this before, but it's the thing that makes it difficult to be particularly a young person alive in this period in history mm. in the past they never had nuclear weapons and they never had the threat of climate change on the scale that we're looking at it and i think you could going all the way back four or five thousand years say to yourself okay there may be battles there may be sackings of cities there may be rise and fall of civilizations mm. but there is always hope and in fact evidence that things get rebuilt yes and i think the difference nowadays and maybe it's why we're so focused on dystopia and why we need to go back maybe to some of these great thinkers is that some of the threats that we face are genuinely apocalyptic mm. genuinely end of day stuff
Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, yes, they didn't, we didn't have nuclear weapons. Having said that, um, that Niall Ferguson, the historian, he's got a book on, I think it's called Doom. I haven't read it, I don't have it, but it's basically how deep inside the human psyche there's almost a natural impulse to predict the apocalypse yeah. and a disaster, and that part of us wants that to be the case, yeah. you know, yeah. Um, and, of course... Uh, many many centuries ago when people were more religious they thought the apocalypse was coming yeah. in, in, in many ways um, a lot of contemporaries within the, within the Western Roman Empire thought that when the Western Roman Empire fell civilization would go with it and that was what on earth is the point in you know Augustine of Hippo for, for, for instance uh, Hippo in North Africa nothing to do with the animal um, I assure you you know he saw the civilization of Rome um, crumbling and he thought this would this is it there's no, there's no, there's no there's no hope for us now um i would i would vote it's i having looked at things like the black death and perpetual war and the miserable state of human existence in the middle ages and i'm doing that um in my bedroom with a warm cup of coffee and a, a heated house in a time where in the country i'm living in life expectancy is is is, is great yeah. i don't have the threat of um armed robbers or bandits about to assault me as i go out to uh at my daily business i can turn the tap on yeah. uh, to get and get clean water yeah. you know so you see you're living in the ukraine or gaza yeah i mean that's a very different story oh completely and that's why i'm very humble and grateful and i have a deep sense of humility about my place in the yeah. world and i think every one who lives in an advanced western stable yeah. democracy should should reflect on that but i suppose really what you're saying is those things do exist and could exist mm for more of us if not all of us yeah um if we got some of these ideas uh some of these very old ideas more more embedded in in our actual day-to-day -day lives and the political mm. philosophies As I said earlier perspective yeah. you know reflects and gives you a new sense of perspective on your state of being in the yeah. world versus what's gone before you yeah. etc you know and but it, obviously I can't, none of us can tell uh, what could happen in the future, whether or not a yeah. nuclear war or climate change or something catastrophic yeah. will. That will be a bad... Someone said this recently. That those things will be a bad thing for humanity, but the Earth will go on. Yeah. You know, life may go on. Well, of course, that's the other thing. All of these things we talked about are works of humanity. Mm. But one of the things that is different uh, is a feeling that actually there's... there's we have, we should be less species centric, if you like, mm. and, and actually think about the other species that inhabit this world and, mm. and possibly species on other planets, and say actually we've got quite e even people like Shakespeare had quite a narrow minded view because it was about um, the history of, of mankind and not about the the the, mm. the right to life of many other species and, mm. and so on. But don't forget, Shakespeare was also <coughs> writing and performing. At a very tumultuous point in British history, yeah. you know, Elizabethan yeah. England, um, this was you know post post Reformation, riven with religious and political yeah. D yeah. D divisions. The succession yeah. question very yeah. very much at the yeah. forefront of people's yeah. minds. Um, Spanish the Spanish Armada yeah. um, that, that there as well. So well, and also, still life expectancy and disease plagues. And, yes, um, the Globe Theatre shuts when the Great Plague. Yeah. Um, what's a hashtag and, COVID. And also, <laughs> I think at that time there was an almost Orwellian kind of mm. swinging backwards and forwards of how you should interpret history. Yes, completely. Um, 
and you know, rewriting history from either the Catholic or the Protestant perspective, particularly. Well, I mean, in terms of Shakespeare, um, of course, to perform on the basis of religious questions back then was utterly taboo. Yeah. Um, I don't think uh, he seldom mentions any reference to um, God or questions, you know, or or reflects the division between Catholic and Protestant then. But yeah. in terms of uh, questions of political authority, um, uh, in fact, it was Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I herself that said that uh, I am King Richard II. Yeah. And of course, King Richard II in the play, that is about a king who was deposed. Yeah. Yes. And... Uh, addresses all kinds of questions about um, factional strife at the yeah. courts, the potential for civil war, political destabilisation. To, to, to portray some people in a good yes. light and others in a bad light. Contrast that with Henry V and the great spirit of optimism through his Agincourt speech yeah. and the fact that England is now... Um, We've unshackled ourselves from Rome. We are this great self-confident Protestant yeah. power that has a great future yeah. ahead of us as well. The yeah. contrast there are very, very, are very, very stark. Yeah. But the, those questions were alive well in Shakespeare's minds, um, his yeah. fellow writers and the rulers and people yeah. of England at the time. We mustn't forget that. No. That's a good point to end on. Mm. Um, we're not the first people to have experienced uh, huge uh, changes in in society and civilization society is never static yes no. human beings were mostly made of water yeah. and and water ranges from the calm tranquil almost still like lake to the tempestuous violent eruptions on a storm you know well that, that is a whole other uh, uh, conversation <laughs> for a podcast that is brilliant thank you so much you're I'm welcome really really good conversation thank you That's all from me this week. I had hoped to cover a few other topics, but too many things got in the way and my time has just disappeared. One of them I will be talking about next week is the up and coming Black Friday and how you can avoid getting duped by it. In fact, why you should avoid it altogether. The other thing I'll be doing next week is a review of the exhibition at the Tate Modern of Philip Guston, which is excellent and well worth a trip not comfortable viewing not cozy but definitely one that resonates with our times even though he was painting in the 30s 40s and 50s and on into the 70s so have a great week life is full of bad things but there are also many many good things we shall overcome and here to play us out is Madonna, who is currently touring, and apparently she's wowing the audiences and doing a brilliant job uh, with Beautiful Stranger.
That's why I'm singing this song.